Humour is a very powerful tool in business. When done well, it can be the thing that creates empathy and helps seal the deal. When done badly, it can go peak tong, as we say in the UK, very, very quickly. Mel Byron is a trainer, comedian and writer who moonlights as a podcaster and old movie fanatic. Mel's tagline is making work a better place with some humour thrown in. If you want to know more about Mel and how she can help your business, then join us after the introduction. Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Coke, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film and a favourite single or album and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at the Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. The Cashflow Show, coming to you from the City of London. Real people, real business, real talk. Hello, Mel, and welcome to the Cashflow Show in association with PRMS Limited. Thank you, Clayton. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're most welcome. So after that introduction, which I hope I've got right, tell us who you are and a little bit about your business. So I, I coach and train and more, mostly the day job is involved working with um, a lot of people who have issues with uh, public speaking, who want to improve their speaking skills and, and so on, and just be confident in the way that, that they can take the stage. And obviously, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a comedian, so you know I spend a lot of my time taking the stage. But as I was, as I started to do this, as I was doing more and more of this, and as I was also doing comedy and in, in kind of in parallel, it started to occur to me that there is so much that we do as comedians that is also relatable to working life. And, and, and humour, yeah, big tick, that's part of it. But it's also about the comedian's craft as well and how we approach creativity and how we approach doing things like work in progress where we actually go out and do stuff that's not ready, not finished, but we put it out into the public domain. We do it in front of an audience because there's no other way to find out if it works. And I look back on my working life when I used to work in, in like a proper job, you know, with, with you know a chair and business cards and all of that malarkey and I thought wow if we'd had the freedom to do this to just you know throw out some work in progress see what we do instead of bringing something finished to the table I think we would have been certainly in some of the organizations that I've worked in much more creative and actually much more innovative and so then then my whole concept of work like a comedian came into being where we look at creativity we look at the confidence that comes from public speaking skills as well because that's all part of it and then also we look at ourselves and 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 my third c is conscience about how we make people feel because in comedy you know we want to make people feel better at the end of the day they don't have to be there they've come because they want to feel better at the end than they did before they arrived. And sure. I do think we should be approaching that. Yeah, exactly. And we should actually make them feel something too. Look inside yourself and think, well, how am I making the people around me feel? 
um, is that good for them? Because if it's not good for them, then it's not good for the business. So that's kind of that's kind of grown organically out of being both a, a coach and trainer in the, the speaking world and working on people with confidence and being a comedian and having done a proper job in inverted commas way back in the distant time. So all these things have come together. And, and you know, that's the thing I'm working on most at the moment, work like a comedian, just really getting that to a state, getting that out there and telling people about it. And I think it's really exciting. I'm really excited about it. Excellent. So what I want to know is that you hinted at what your job was in your former life. Are you prepared to divulge that information? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you can go on my LinkedIn profile and you can find it. Yeah, I... <laughs> no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to turn that into no, a stalker. <laughs> no, no, exactly, exactly. But, you know, people do that. Uh, I, I've looked at my LinkedIn profile and you look at and it can tell you how, um, how many people have looked at your profile. And then there's a sudden spike and you think, mm, is that is that ex-colleague stalking me? And <laughs> I've got somebody from New York University that keeps on stalking me, that keeps on coming up. And they've not re- they haven't revealed themselves, so I don't know if they're attractive or not. So I don't know if the stalking's working. So um... <laughs> it could be a very big teaching job coming your way <laughs> in New York. Just hang on in there. I think a professorship. I see a professorship you, in your future. You, you think that their people are going to talk to my people, and we're going to meet for lunch? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're going to meet for lunch. You know, they're going to fly you out first class so before you know it. You know, you you walk past me in the street without looking at me. Uh, but to be serious, I used to work in book publishing. Okay. Yeah, and I worked, and and you know, you think of that, and you think, well, that must be by definition a creative industry. Indeed. And it is, it is to to certain, but it's also to a certain degree, it's also a commercial business as well. And and I worked on the sales and marketing side, and and I know from experience, often we were kind of slightly hamstrung. I mean, the book the book publishing industry is a an interesting industry because it, it deals with creative product, but its internal mechanisms do tend to have been the same for a long time. And I think COVID is actually, from what I've heard from friends of the industry, COVID has actually pushed them to perhaps think about things a little bit differently. So that's that's very interesting. What led you to start your current business? It took me 20 more years to actually decide, hmm, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you, it, there was a kind of, there was a kind of li- almost linear thing that happened. So, so I left my final full-time job because um, it was basically a horrible boss's situation. And I wasn't enjoying being in that situation where, um, yeah, basically mental health was being compromised and colleagues were leaving and I was not feeling my best and not doing my best. And I just thought, I've just got to get out of here and I don't, I don't really know what I'm going to do next. Then I got out. And, and then I started working part time. And so I still had my foot in the industry, but I just got, just relieved me from a lot of pressure. And, and I knew that in my head, there was this voice in my head saying, you've got to help people who have been in this position because there's too many of us. So I'm starting to read up about, you know, uh, how many of us are, are disengaged and unhappy at work. 
McKinsey says 70% of us might even be more. I don't know. And and so I'm reading about this and I think, how can I help people? How can I help people? And one day a light bulb just went on in my head because I had done comedy back in my 20s, then got seduced by PAYE. <laughs> oh, that, 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 that hussy, PAYE. Absolute hussy. <laughs> but oh my word, how seductive. 28th of every month. Oh, money in your bank account. I mean, you know, what a joy. Oh, I tell you, um, it's, it's, it's called it's, me back in on occasions. I've been tempted, but I've been. Tell the, me the, about the, it. The, the palms have been itching and the, the sweat's been just dripping <laughs> off me. Oh, just because I wanted that. that, that, that. Oh, oh, look at this. It's a bracelet. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my word. And so for 20 years, I was kind of seduced by that. And, and I just thought, ah, do you know what? This light bulb moment I had, I thought, you know what, why not help people like me, this 70%, through the medium of comedy? And so I created the show. So I so I went I went on a course because I hadn't done comedy for so long. I thought, oh, can I still do this? And because in my mind was I wanted to create a show about the workplace. And that's what I did. I created the show, took it up to the Edinburgh Fringe, did it in a few other fringes. And and it was lovely. I mean, it was so nice. I mean, at the time I was kind of new to comedy, so I had a small venue and and but people were coming in and they were saying to me afterwards, you just talked about my life. And and we had a laugh about it together. And that's a really powerful thing. And there was a bit in the show where I, you know, I'd talk about certain experiences and people would tell me their experiences. And so I wrote some of those into the show as well. But there was that kind of lovely collectiveness of, oh, my God, we can just sit here and have a laugh about it. Uh, you know, and I talked about bosses and I talked about, you know, rubbish perks. You know, when they they, you, they say, oh, this is you know, rubbish perks like death in service, <laughs> which, you, you know, hello, you can't draw on that unless you're dead. And, and so, you know, we talked about things like that. Uh, and it was great fun. And I had a real laugh doing it. Uh, but, you know, the, again, the voice, you know, the voice is always in your head, isn't it? Saying, yeah, OK, that's all very well. But what can you do positively to impact people? Because comedy, comedy, yes, I say, you know, it's about making people feel better. But a lot of comedy comes from a level of cynicism and blackness. And, and I wanted to do something positive. And I'd always led teams and worked with teams and mentored people. And public speaking was a big thing for me because I knew a lot of people hated it, but I loved it. So I was always the person saying, I'll, I'll give that presentation or whatever, or I'll be helping other people with theirs. So I thought, well, here's a thing I can start with. And, and then that, plus the comedy organically, has become this work like a comedian thing, which, you know, look out for. It's coming. Oh, it's exciting. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's we're exciting. Gonna, we're going to get back to that. <laughs> now, so you've decided to take the leap. That's always a, a good thing. When yeah. you first put forward the idea that you were going to combine comedy and business, did people stop you and say, you're having a laugh, love, or things like that? <laughs> I hope they did. And no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I think there is death. No, and, and that surprised me a bit. Because I think once people kind of heard the idea, went, yeah, do you know what? That's not a bad idea. You know, if we can, we can have more laughter at work, this is a good thing. And I know, for example, from my working life, 
and this is a bad thing, is that the times in which we have had the most laughs was almost those pressure cooker moments where we had to just relieve the tension. And I know in teams that I've worked in, you know, we go and have a meeting because we're like, oh my God, we've got this thing and it's just, oh, it's really driving us mad. How are we going to deal with it? And we'd have a laugh around it. We'd throw around ideas and have a laugh, but that was relieving the pressure. Uh, what if we could do it in a more positive way where humor and and is humor is really part of the working day and and just yeah you know, laughter and getting things wrong and imperfection and and oh silly me but there's no fear involved it's just that oh well, we had a laugh that was daft wasn't it that didn't work did it oh well never mind let's move on and I, I really feel that that's there's legs in that and I know other people have said yeah yeah this is good and certainly when I taught when I did the show I think there was a, a definite sort of embracing of, yeah, we need to we need to get more of this in the workplace. And I, I did it as a kind of funny TED talk where I had slides. And I remember doing it once, a festival in Kent, and I had this slide up and the woman, a woman from the audience just went, stop. And I thought, oh God, what have I done? And she stood up, got her mobile phone out and started taking pictures. She said, okay, you can carry on then. <laughs> and I asked her afterwards and she said, I'm just gonna show that at work tomorrow. So I thought, oh, good. So other people are going to have a laugh. They weren't here, but it doesn't matter. They weren't here. That's going to create laughter. Because I was doing the show on a Sunday night, and I thought, on a Monday, some people are going to have a laugh about my sh my show, mm. even though most of them weren't there. And that's a great thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a great thing. There are certain things that are commensurate with working in an office environment. And obviously, we all know about uh, Ricky Gervais and The Office, mm -hmm. yeah. and obviously the American version of that, with which I can't—I can see the guy's face, but I can't remember his name—and the American version of The Office, which are both incredibly successful programs, and have made uh, Ricky Gervais incredibly successful too. But I think, as you said, when it comes to humor, there are certain things that we all get from a particular situation no matter how morbid or bleak or whatever we we are all experiencing the same things and sometimes we don't believe we believe we're the only person experiencing those things and mm -hmm. we then find somebody else has experienced exactly the same thing and it, it bring, does bring a certain level of bonding and empathy so I think that in terms of that it these there's an old saying um, an old Jamaican saying that what is it you have to take a, a a bad situation and make light of it in order for it to work. Yeah. And that's not exactly how it's said, but that's just a rough translation in my Trevor <laughs> McDonald. Um, <laughs> but it, ultimately, that's what it means. And I think that's sometimes the way that you, when you're presenting these things, I think you have to take those heavy situations and make light of them because I, I think that's the only way to get through. Absolutely, absolutely. Otherwise it becomes, it's something that, and, and I, I, you know, I often talk about this, what I call seepage, where it, this thing seeps into your real life outside work, where this situation just gets bigger and bigger and, you know, you, you bring it home with you and, and, there's, and you, you lose sleep because you're stewing on it. And always, we've got to make these things lighter. At, at the end of the day, I always used to say to, to teams that worked with me, when they go, oh, it's terrible, and I'm going to get in so much trouble with this. I always say to my team, look, you know, we work in book publishing. We publish books. We don't bring babies into the world. We don't fight fires. 
you know we we publish books if we have to revise what we're doing if we have to do it again or if we have to just stop and go home now because enough and come back to it tomorrow it will be fine it will be fine and you know i i sometimes in some of the organizations i worked in felt i was a bit of a lone voice in that respect but i think you have to just go enough enough you yeah. know it's only books it's only books lovely books but and it's it, only books it's only books <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> now what i wanted to talk to you about was your experience as a writer. Mm -hmm. How does that feature in your presentation work, but also in your stand-up? Um, a lot of it, in terms of writing, and it's taken me time to learn this because as we know, everything, certainly creative, creativity is like a muscle, isn't it? And you get better and better Correct. at it. Yeah, and you have to keep doing it. Is to me, everything boils down, and I talk about this when I'm working with clients, or certainly on their, their speaking skills, boils down to structure. Let's structure it as a story. Let's structure what we're writing as a story so that there's a there's a resolution at the end. And, and you can boil your story down into three distinct parts. And, and we talk about this in comedy as well, you know, the rule of three, mm. uh, which rhythmically is very nice. Uh, if you're telling a joke that's a rule of three, you know, like if I say to you, oh, Clayton, I play in all the best places, you know, London. New York Kettering. There's your rule of yeah. three. Apologies to anybody from Kettering. Uh, Kettering, really... Kettering, we love you, babe. We love you. It's going to be. We cool. love you. And and just just can I say, if I do get invited to perform in Kettering, I'll say Swindon. So it's fine. Uh, <laughs> but you know that rule of three, where everything boils down to a three. Three is a lovely rhythmic thing. Of course. So if I'm and and it is, isn't it? Two it is. is not enough. Four's too many. Yes. And so we have that. So I'm always trying to boil everything down into three to drop my, 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 my jokes, my stories. If I write, so I sometimes I write for magazines, trying to get you know that three act in the beginning where I'm, I'm starting to take you on the journey. The middle, I tell you all about the journey. And then the end where we have the resolution and the payoff or in terms of comedy, the punchline. Mm. And and so, yeah, learning that has been really helpful to me. And the other thing in terms of writing and the thing that I spend a lot of time on and I, I urge other people who write to do the same thing is cutting economy. Yeah, I can write an article and I can be asked to write a thousand words for an article and I might write a thousand words, but actually 200 of them are redundant. So they have to go. And then I might, you know, it's cut, cut, cut. <laughs> and so you have that story and in comedy, cut, cut, cut. So the distance from the, the distance from the beginning of your joke to the punchline is as short as it can possibly be so that the audience gets that punchline quickly. And you can have a long story that has multiple punchlines in it, that break each one of them down and, and cut, 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 so that the distance between each one is not so great. And that makes for much more fluid comedy. I don't always get it right, but that's what work in progress is for. You go, oh yeah, there was too much, too much faff in there. I'm gonna cut that, cut that, and then we get to the, the punchline. Well, that's interesting because I think I read somewhere and the quote was, there is no writing, only rewriting. 
Exactly, exactly. You do spend more time, I certainly do spend more time editing than writing. I mean, the writing is just like getting it all down, just dumping all the ideas down. And then it's the editing and the rewriting that creates something that people will want to read. Indeed. So in terms of public speaking, in your opinion, why is public speaking so hard? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, when you think about it, it shouldn't be that hard. We speak to other people all the time. But it's a very strange thing that goes on in our brain. Our brain is telling us we're under threat. You know, it's the amygdala, that little thing at the back of your brain is saying to you, "Uh oh, what, you're going to stand up and talk to people? that's a threat and that's you know that's your brain giving you wrong information because we're very anxious why are we anxious i think it's because we are under threat it's our vulnerability that's under threat isn't it we we feel we're being we're being judged that's right uh, which is a kind of attack on us in the same way as your amygdala is telling you oh my god i'm under threat if there's a tiger in the room because that's going to attack us we fear that kind of attack on our very person our very essence from somebody who's going to judge what we're going to say and and that's really I I know so many people who hold themselves back and go, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I know I'm a rubbish speaker. Um, And actually, that's really sad. Apparently, 73% of us suffer from glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. And, you know, which is more than fear, you know, so many other things like heights or dying or whatever. Um, And I just think it's, it's that vulnerability. It's putting yourself on the line. I think it's hard. You're right. Mm. It's, it, it's the difficulty with public speaking is is that people don't like to stumble, and I think being relaxed enough to pause in order to think and collect your thoughts, but not look as if you're waiting thirty seconds with which to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the parallel would be rappers. For example. There are certain rappers, Jay-Z being one of them and Notorious B.I.G. being another, were rappers who didn't write their lyrics down. It was all up in their heads. Um, so they managed to achieve that ability. But when, upon reciting them, they were able to recite them, obviously, in the right order and use their brains effectively to jigsaw puzzle these things together. So it comes out sounding smooth. Whereas most people, obviously, when we're writing and we're rewriting and that doesn't work and that doesn't flow as well and so on and so forth, it can appear difficult. But I think people don't want to look stupid. It's it's it, it totally, totally. I mean, often what I do when, when I, if, I, if I work with clients on specifically on the speaking skills, um, I'll sit and talk with them a while and say, well, what do you want to do? Why, why are you here? What, what makes you come to somebody like me? And they'll start telling me or I've asked them about their expertise and they'll start telling me. And then after that, uh, you know, I'll say, you know, you just presented to me. You just did the things that you didn't think you could do because we were having a conversation and what we have to do is try and fool our brains into thinking, well, this is a conversation. Sometimes a lot of it is to do with fooling your brain. Because if your brain is daft enough to think you are massively under threat, the same level of threat as if you were literally going to die, 
whilst as you're preparing to get up and speak then what we have to do is is reframe the thinking look at the mindset reframe the thinking and fool our brains back and go no this is a conversation i'm going to get out there and i'm just going to talk to people because people what happens is people think what they're doing is giving a performance mm. and that if you're giving a performance you have to be perfect and i always say forget about perfection it doesn't matter right here right now you know you, we all watch the ted talks on youtube and they are dazzling right but those guys have been doing it for years those guys have been coached because ted and all these organizations will have somebody who'll work with you those guys have been coached don't think that's where you're going to get to today from a standing start so again it's about embracing imperfection so if you go um you know, the world will not come to an end. <laughs> it, it, and that's, and, and I know there are speaking coaches who go, all right, we're going to get rid of all those fillers. And of course you need to get rid of them eventually. But for day, for day one, for right here today, it's our first day together I'm coaching you. I don't mind if you slip in an um or you stumble, but you're absolutely right about the pause because that's my, if, if people ask me one piece of advice, my big piece of advice is take it slow because that allows your brain to catch up with your mouth. And as you say, that pause, a pause is a wonderful thing because people listening need to have that pause so they can digest. And also when we're on stage, what we think is like three and a half minutes is three seconds. Mm. And so give yourself that pause. It doesn't, it's fine. It's not gonna take anything away. That's just going to allow us all to just reset, especially you, your, your brain is going to now catch up with your mouth. But the, the best way to do that is to stay slow in the first place. Yeah. And you can slow down enough so you still sound, you don't sound like the Duracell bunny. <laughs> You know, the, the one that's not using Duracell, the one that's, that's running out. Um, you can slow down enough so you're still flowing, but you're not speaking at your normal speed. But that's fine because as an audience, that's helpful for us. Because when somebody's talking like this really, 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 really fast, you can't understand a word they're saying anyway. Exactly. So, <laughs> keep it slow. That's my one overarching thing. If you said to me, if we bumped into each other on the tube and you said, ah, I've got to give a presentation in 30 seconds, you know, a minute, next stop, you know, give me in your 10 seconds what to do. I'd say, Clayton, keep it slow and wish you well. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that, that's, that's the tip for today. That's one of the tips for today, at least. Totally. But I have a confession to make. Mm-hmm. I, I have been stalking you and I, <laughs> I went onto YouTube and I found... Um, Mel Byron, I'm now like a man. Oh, <laughs> now, ah, <laughs> uh, that video. Oh my God! Do you know? Do you know who else viewed that video? Is that the the talent scout for Britain's Got Talent? <laughs> <laughs> who got in touch with me and said, would you like to come on the show? I said, no, thanks, I'll pass. He said, but I loved all that menopause. I'm like a man. So, no, I'm good, thank you. Uh, <laughs> he got in touch with me twice. I was like, no. Because it is good. Because I, I, I have to be honest with you. I, was, I, said, I, thought, I wasn't sure what to expect. So I, I just I just, I just thought to myself, you're in the comedy club setting. I can see that, right? Cool, not a problem. <laughs> and then you started this stuff and I thought menopause. Okay, everybody's trying to get on that, that bandwagon. But 
I'm not going to spoil it for anybody else, but oh, I you. enjoyed it. I nearly, I nearly spat out my rooibos tea. <laughs> my... <laughs> oh, nice. I like that. That's what we call a callback in comedy. And what you did was reverse what I did. I like it. Clayton, I feel a whole new career coming on for you. Do you know something? <laughs> I'm trying to. I, I need some alternative income with the, the way that these prices are going up. <laughs> I, need, I need a side hustle, man. I need a side hustle. Well, let me tell I'll tell you something. With petrol prices as they are at the moment i have to say <laughs> the uh, the net income is not as it was unfortunately so because that's what i wanted to ask you as well really can you make money out of comedy or is it all about getting to the michael mcintyre peter k stage before reaping the rewards and i should stop there and say for those of us outside of the UK, Michael McIntyre and Peter Kay are comedians who are well known and loved by big audiences and fill out basically stadiums in order to um, uh, do their work. Yeah, there's, I mean, they are the exception. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people doing comedy. Uh, there is a level kind of, I would say, maybe below them where you can make a decent living doing the clubs. So you're doing like the comedy store and the Glee Club and places like Hot Water in Liverpool where you saw that video of mine. Yeah. And you're doing the weekend shows, um, the Friday night, Saturday night shows, and they're the ones that pack them in. And you can you can make money just doing that club circuit. You can actually live doing that. And then there's a kind of level below that, where you know we're we're not doing it all the time, and you know we've got some money coming in from it, and it's nice, and you know that's all very well and good. And then there are a lot of people who just do it as a hobby. It's it's an outlet. You know, if you have had a miserable day in the office and you go to a place in London where you can just do uh, five ten minutes in a room sometimes with just some other comedians but everybody's there to have a laugh there is something rather wonderful about that as well and I know people who just do it as a hobby it's a, a lovely outlet for them. I think there are a lot of people who comedy especially in the last, I would say, 20 years, the idea of comedy clubs and people going to comedy clubs, when I was growing up, it's not something that people did. You know, a comedy person was the person that was part of a variety show or a variety mm -hmm. troupe. The idea that you would sit, go there and watch, you know, 10 comics or five comics of an evening or whatever the case may be, is in a sense a relatively new phenomenon. I don't know if I'm right in that or... Well, it, it kind of, the, the 80s was when that alternative thing really started at the comedy store with people like Alexi Sale. Um, it did tend to be a me bit metropolitan. Yeah. Um, and very much centre. I mean, London, the comedy store, and then later Jonglers were very much the heart of that. It was a very metropolitan thing. And yes, it did spread to other cities. Cities, obviously and the Edinburgh Fringe has always had comedy as a part of it but I would say I think you're right I think in, in maybe even less than the last 20 years it's really undergone an explosion and everywhere's got a comedy night and there are comedy clubs all over the place and I just I've just been on 
tour. Uh, I said that in inverted commas this weekend. I was down <laughs> in Cornwall at a wonderful venue, which is a kind of performance space, come cafe bar, and oh, it was lovely. And then I drove, uh, spent the night in Portsmouth, and then yesterday afternoon I was in the Isle of Wight, um, where the comedy has to take place in the afternoon because the last ferry goes back to the mainland at half past eight. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, this very enterprising young man has set up a comedy comedy club in Ride, and there we are. There we are in Ride on a Sunday afternoon, chatting to the people, and it's it was a delight. It was an absolute delight. <laughs> so, uh, the, but, so, yeah. so what happens? Does the guy stand there? Go, listen, love. You better wind up there. You better wind up. The ferry's gonna go. The ferry's gonna go. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we were all we were all done and dusted by four o'clock. We started at two, we finished at four, and and it was lovely because otherwise he'd be restricted to comedians who live on the Isle of Wight, and I would imagine they could be counted on the fingers of one hand. Yeah, I, I think to to, to plough one's trade in such a small area is can't be that much good, can it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there was clearly an audience for it. Of course, yeah. in Cornwall, you know. And I've been to villages that, that you say to me, oh, do you remember we went to that village in what's it say? I can't remember the name of the village, but I can remember that the village hall was packed, <laughs> you know. Um, and so so there is, there, there's definitely, I'd say maybe even in the last 10 years, 10 years, maybe more than 20, even, there's been a real explosion. And that means there are people at all different levels doing it. So you might get... Uh, you might get a telly headliner, but you'll also maybe get somebody doing five minutes who's never done comedy before. Yeah, uh, and I think that's great. You anyway, know, there's a real mix in there. But yeah, comedy is. I mean, it's certainly more commoditized than it was before. Um, but there are more opportunities if you're willing, like I am, to get in the car and drive to Cornwall um, and then you do the maths and you think ah, yeah petrol uh, <laughs> 165 a litre but you know I had a good time and they had a good time so it's all good excellent so I'm curious about the way that comedy is written how does that work? Because I'm always fascinated when people say, oh, I'm a comedy writer or I write comedy for people. I know how songs are written. I know how they're put together. I know how they're arranged. I know a lot of that. I've had many years to learn that. But comedy and like and scripts and stuff like that, I find it's like another world. It's quite fascinating. I And I just wanted to have an insight. You know, do you write your all your own material or how does it work? I do. I do write all my own material. I'm not as prolific a writer as, as some people who come out every time you see them, they've got new material. Uh, but they're equally, there are some people who are doing the same 20 minute set over and over again. But of course, if you're traveling the country, that's fine because, mm -hmm. you know, the people in Cornwall won't have heard that before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the people in the Isle of Wight haven't heard it before. So I'm not as prolific a writer as, as other people. Um, I mean, I tend to, like most of you ask most comedians, they'll have a notebook with them or they use their phone and something will happen and they'll, they'll write it down. Yes. And it'll just be a nugget. It'll be a nugget. And then you come back to that nugget and you keep refining it or you 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 write things that, um, 
you try it, you try it out. It doesn't work in front of an audience. You come back and you do it again. I mean, some people will do literally exercises where, I mean, there's all kinds of writing exercises where you, know, you take a proverb and you knock the second half off. So like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, take away worth two in the bush and think of another way to end a bird in the hand, for example. And I'm saying that because I'm thinking, I wish, I hope he doesn't ask me to do that because I can't think of anything off the top no, of No, 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 I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing about in the writing side of me wants to finish that off for you, but I haven't got the skills. Is it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and so, but the thing is you might do it and you might think, oh, this is great. And then you do it in front of an audience and go, oh, that's no, not so good. But you know, those kinds of things, or you might, you you might be asked to do puns or, you know, there'll be things like, you know, things you can't say at a funeral. Somebody, you might get a prompt from a, a prompting exercise yes. where you do things like that. So some people literally go through those processes. And I think they are the people who probably are the most prolific writers. And especially if you're a one-liner comedian. Like Tim Vine, you mean? Exactly. Then you, you have to just churn out this stuff and do that level of exercise. You do those puns all the time. And there are some people who who, who are just gifted and can see puns puns and things that that I can't that's not my thing at all um but yeah I'm an I, I'm a I, I like to observe the uh, the absurdity of the world around me and and that, that covid was very difficult for that because there was just no external stimulus at all there was no world around me other than my house and <laughs> yeah it became there was not much going on so yeah I, the writing process is the hardest process definitely but that's what I, I i you know i'm a great believer in the whole work in progress doing new material nights because you need to get the stuff out there and sometimes you're on stage and something comes out of your mouth you never expected to come out of your mouth because something happened in that moment yes and then you capture that and you write that into your set the next time so you see a lot of comedians will have their phone next to them um they sometimes it's for timing but often they're recording themselves yes just to see what basically yeah. that comes out of it exactly yeah, yeah. Okay. so when people find out that you're a comedian and comedy is one of the things that you do and it's one of the strings to your bow, does that create a pressure to be funny all the time? Oh, God. You know, the number of people said to me, oh, tell me a joke. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, I might kind of say, what do you do for the, I'm a marketing manager. Go on, market me something then. You, know, <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that in any other profession. I, I, I tend not to do, I, you know, some people will go, okay, here's, here's an example. I don't do that. You know, I'm, I'm like, well, you know, this is not the environment. And I think I'm a naturally witty, funny person. So if naturally witty things come out of our conversation, that's fine. But if they don't, I'm not a person person who'll come up with a, a joke on demand because you have to see all of what I do in the context of what I'm doing because I'm not a one-liner comedian I'm not a joke person no no sense. I mean and that's where the difficulty lies isn't it because obviously mm -hmm. that there are some people who literally come up with puns and one-liners or there are certain people who create literally a backstory mm -hmm. they create a whole universe around yeah. that one joke and yeah. you know you're literally going into their world yeah yeah, and you have to you have to enter that world, and and when you go and see somebody do a show, especially if they're doing a lot a full a full length show or a longer length show, 
then they're creating that world for you and you have to buy into that and go with them but you know oh hey hello here's mel she's a comedian oh really tell me a joke that doesn't for me that doesn't work and and most people and most comedians i know they we dread that (laughs) and i can believe it because it would annoy the hell out of me it's like when people say oh you know such and such and such you know well you know Okay, they'll say something like, you know, oh, I heard you sing a bit. Sing us a song then. I'm thinking, oh, get lost. You haven't exactly. paid me. <laughs> exactly. Oh, are you a, you're a podcaster, Clayton. Oh, do me a podcast right here, right now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, worst thing, the worst thing about it is that I would then take out my phone and start doing a podcast. That's, <laughs> that's how to, because I suppose I would rather do that than necessarily say, oh, I'm going to sing you a song. And somebody say, oh, do me a podcast. I say, listen, yeah, let's do it. I think I'd, I'd be quite, I'd be quite scary on that. I think because I just left alone with a microphone or left alone with, because I'm, I'm just not afraid to ask questions. I've always mm. just sort of been that kind of guy. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I should stop, start stopping people in the street and saying, "Do you want a podcast, mate?" Yeah, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ex- oh, do you know what you should do? Is, you know the the Clayton stops people in the street podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted to. I'd probably work out how many times I'm likely to get arrested and stopped and yeah, searched. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you know, see how long you could make it. Oh, I I would do it. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just need to get my solicitor on speed dial. That's all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just have them hanging. But hanging nearby. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. You see? The Cash Flow Show. Coming to you from the city of London. Real people, real business, real talk. So after after that jollity <laughs> and me not stop getting stopped by the police, mm, um, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, and this is a question I don't normally give all the questions that I attempt to ask. Sometimes because they're done the night before, sometimes they're done an hour before. But I knew this was going to be a tricky one for you. So I wanted to give you as much advance notice as possible, which I did. So I I did ask you about a couple of weeks ago, what were your top five comedians? And who are your top five comedians? You did, you did. And that was tough because five sometimes is too many in a sense, but it's also not enough. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you'd asked me my top one straight off the top of my head without even thinking, I would have told you Victoria would. Um, she was, you know, one of a kind and an absolute inspiration to generations of, of female comedians who followed her. She was, yeah, absolutely amazing. And when, when I... I I watched your video with somebody else and I remember saying to them, she's an anarchic um, uh, uh, Victoria Wood. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's just what it came across. You know, but, you know, Victoria Wood, I tell you, her killer one for me is let's do it. You know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is just yeah. a, a genius song. Yeah. It's a genius. She, again, had this gift for... It's certainly that spotting the the idiosyncrasies of Britishness and and that song let's do it is so much part of that you know and she mentions things that so British like the hostess trolley and the woman's weekly and oh yeah yeah beat me on the bottom with a woman's weekly, woman's it's, weekly. It's, it's, exactly. a, it's, it's something I've attempted often but um <laughs> wow I, want to, <laughs> I think you might have to put a certificate on, this, on a rating it's, over it's all good clean fun it's all good clean fun oh, 
all good, clean pandas. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was all that that sort of Britishness yes. um, that she brilliantly observed. And another person I'm hugely fond of, and I love as a, a, a comedian, I, I never met her personally, I'd love to, is Janie Godley. I don't know if you know no, Janie. No, I don't know her. Ah, now Janie, unfortunately, at the moment, sadly, is, uh, well, not sadly, um, hopefully, happily, is, is coming through uh, cancer treatment. Uh, looks like she's she's been back on stage recently, uh, and she's from Glasgow, uh, and she is she's also a fantastic observer of life and the madness and the idiosyncrasies of it and growing up in working class Glasgow she talks a lot about that and you know Glasgow mothers and how they behave and it's just fantastic and a few years ago I think before Covid but during Covid it really took off she started doing voiceovers so you'd have Nicola Sturgeon's broadcast to the nation about Covid every day and then Janie would put her own voiceover on top of it and I think a lot of people certainly in Scotland after a while couldn't tell the difference didn't know which one was really oh, which voice no. was really Nicola wow. one was Janie uh, but it was brilliant because I think it really helped she really helped to deliver the the Covid message in Scotland uh, she did a lot of Brexit videos as well where she'd do voiceovers of Theresa May which if you look them up on YouTube honestly they're hilarious <laughs> bit sweary yeah, you know, not for the kiddies but she's just brilliant and you know I hope she's well again soon and, and she's back on tour Excellent. and we get to see her soon okay so, so her, and then of course Hannah Gadsby. You, know, I mean, I don't know if you again if you've come across Hannah Gadsby, Australian comedian, who did a landmark show. It must be about five years now. Called go now called Nanette, which for the first time I think more than anybody kind of trod that line between tragedy and comedy. People were coming out of the show going, "Oh, I've cried." You know, and and I mean, she's an amazing storyteller, and that that show Nanette really put her into the the top rank. I mean, she already was, a, you know, a star, but now that put her into the top rank. So if if you haven't seen Nanette, I think it's on Netflix. Yes, she Hannah won Gersby. the outstanding award for yeah, outstanding writing for a variety special and a Peabody Award. For that. Did she? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know. And and if you watch it, you can see it, there's just it's very hard to to tread that line between tragedy and comedy. And and she does it just brilliantly, and really puts it really puts herself on the line. We were talking earlier about vulnerability, and she really puts herself on the line. And she's amazing. So I definitely know. So then I thought, well, who who else? So I've got two more to go. So I'm going to pick two friends of mine. Okay. And and, and one um, is a brilliant comedian. He's a young youngish i think he's actually older than you think uh you know one of those eternally youthful young people um <laughs> don biswas is his name and honestly i don't understand why he's not have on have i got news for you because there are very few political comedians coming through now no. uh, most people are not touching it but don does in a way that's utterly brilliant and i'm very he's got a radio 4 special coming up this week Ooh. which i'm really pleased. i think it's sunday night after the archers um and that was recorded in manchester so i couldn't go unfortunately but i've i've gigged with don a 
lot and honestly he's just brilliant and I cannot cannot recommend him enough Don Biswas he's he's a political comedian he's also got um dyspraxia so he talks about that as well um but just just uh, he's just so clever he's one-liners his stories he's brilliant so okay cool look out for Don and another dear friend of mine who's also on very much on the way up um, is uh, he's Taiwanese. He's called Kwan Wen Wong. And honestly, uh, he's a brilliant comedian. You're, as going well. to, you're going to have to. Can you spell that? Say that again a little bit slower. It's <laughs> Kwan Wen Wong. And it's Kwan, Kwan Wen is K U A N. A N. Carry on. And then Wen W E N. And then Huang is H U A N G. Oh, okay. Uh, and he's interested. I mean, he's Taiwanese. There are a lot of comedians actually at the moment who are non-native speakers of English. It's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and and Kwan Wen is just adorable. He's just got this lovely personality that just reaches across the stage. A little bit naughty sometimes, but I think that's why people like him so much. Um, he's great. So yeah. So that's that's my five. Okay. Well, I've got five. Um, okay, yeah, right. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, my top five. Number one, Chris Rock. Okay, and, interesting. And, mm -hmm. uh, but I would say Chris Rock pre-divorce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After the divorce, he's kind of gone a bit. He comes up every so often. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that joke hits the mark. But sometimes I think they're flailing around a bit. I think pre-divorce, Chris Rock monster you know just on yeah. any given night just killer he, he and i are separate he's a very similar age um a very similar experiences i have to watch um everybody hates chris behind the sofa because it's so scary like my life um uh, <laughs> it's yeah it's really really good and the mum is like just this serious mum, and i'm thinking yep that's was that was my <laughs> mum. so i i empathize with him a hundred percent and this kind of sort of geekish black guy who's trying to find his way in the the whole scheme of things, and it's it's very interesting. So I I would put him at number one pre-divorce. Number two, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy in the eighties for me was just completely unstoppable. I mean, he really was a gag machine back yeah. then. He was unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And I think the difficulty is is that Eddie didn't moved too much into Hollywood. And I think he got saddled with bad scripts to me. And I think it's very much like the Will Smith thing. I think you can only do, you can only play yourself so many times unless you can get into character. And I think Will Smith has managed to do some of that, but we'll come back onto him in a moment. Um, Richard Pryor, the originator of that really open style of comedy, very raw, very direct but also a fantastic storyteller. Um, I do know. I don't think I've ever watched any of his stand-up. And that's shameful, really, isn't it? To be honest with you, I can un understand why you probably haven't, but it really is a masterpiece in comedy. Really, he, he does this joke about him and the mafia. And it's absolutely hilarious. And... I think a lot of the jokes, I think even though he's an African-American comedian, obviously necessarily very popular in to a black audience, but his behaviour and his tics and his, you know, just the way of being 
is just actually genuinely incredibly funny. And together with Gene Wilder, oh, now that was a comedy machine. Yeah, no, I've seen that their film. Yeah, in in film, that's where I've seen Richard Pryor. I've never seen him do stuff. Yeah, you know, if you want to see a masterpiece in comedy, that is Richard Pryor. All comedians really owe a massive debt to Richard Pryor. Your massive debt to Richard Pryor. So, um, uh, Richard Pryor live at Sunset Strip is what I'd recommend there. Okay, right. I'm writing that recommendation down, down <laughs> now. Yes. So, and we also have two British comedians too, and uh, uh, they're interchangeable in terms of order, but I'd have to say a, a renewed appreciation for Billy Connolly. Oh. Um, just, just masterpiece storytelling just mm-hmm. master strokes everything he's leading you one direction and you just find yeah. yourself somewhere else and it's just like you know he does this joke about why people believe in spirits and ghosts and he thinks it's complete nonsense he goes and he goes yeah he goes oh and you'll have to my accents are rubbish so i'm uh, <laughs> oh you know I, I bought this castle i bought this castle it sounds like i'm an irishman doesn't it I'm, uh, <laughs> i bought this castle you know I, i've got to have somewhere to put the profits i got to have somewhere to put the profits i bought this castle and you know uh, um, uh, uh, they say it's haunted they say it's haunted but it's, it's just complete rubbish it's rubbish but you know i, I was having a laugh and i just said to people oh you know that the place is haunted and people are waking up in the morning and they're telling me that they've seen spirits and spectres. What's wrong with you, man? The place isn't haunted. It's just your imagination. When you're dead, you're dead. That's come to terms with it. And it was it's his way of sort of rationalising things that people mm. take on board. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's just um, that's just a, a, a great comedian brought out of a lot of tragedy or brought out of a lot of tragedy because yeah. his life wasn't the best. It really wasn't, was it? Which yeah. which only came out much, much later, the extent when his wife wrote a book, didn't yes, she? Yes, that's and right. And that's when it all came out. And you think, my God. Because, yeah. yeah, again, he grew up in Glasgow, like Janie Godley, yeah. you know, and, and we all know that it was tough up there. Yeah. And, Boy, it was, yeah. yeah, it was rough. Very rough. Yeah, yeah. And my last comedian is going to be Mickey Flanagan. Oh, isn't he wonderful? <laughs> Mickey Flanagan is just absolutely amazing. It, it, he is... Um, right, oh, yeah, OK. I'm led to believe he was born in Whitechapel. So he's got that East End stroke, South East London thing going on, which suits me. I'm from Lucian, so therefore, at the end of the day, it works. It works perfect. Everything that he talks about, I just completely resonates with me. Uh, completely the opposite spectrum to Chris Rock, but yeah. very much London and what London's about. And, you know, the expression going out, out now is just... Yes. <laughs> there's, 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 he's the guy. You just you said you just say the out out guy, and everybody knows who you're talking about. Everybody knows it's Mickey. And you know what's really interesting is that you know Mickey Flanagan. Um, and obviously, a lot of comedians were coming up at the time he was coming up. 
Um, and they massively overtook him. It took him a long time to really get that break. Um, and some people never get that break. And it took him a long time to get that break. But, um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for him. He, you know, he kept doing what he was doing and, and he's good at what he does. And I'm glad that break came because it doesn't always come for people. Just being really good sometimes isn't enough. But in Mickey's case, it did come and, and well-deserved it was. Yeah, yeah. As I said, you, you when we... We see people on television we never really appreciate what that journey is it you know it takes 10 years to become an overnight success that type of thing absolutely absolutely and you know it can be it can be something very simple it could be that you you know you you do a show in edinburgh for example and it might be your 10th show and the right person comes to see it uh, or the word of mouth gets out and suddenly you know people are knocking on your door and yet the previous nine shows you know you couldn't get arrested in it, it's it happened. This is how it works. Um, well, that's and for hap- some people, Karen. never happened. Yeah, I was going to say for some people it will never happen. But you know, you keep going, and there are some fantastic comedians out there. And as I say, my friend on business, I'm so pleased he's on on the radio. Mm. You know, my husband and I often sit, you know, listening to or we've been to gigs with him and think, why is this man not on the telly? <laughs> you know, and and you know, finally, and he's been around for about. I think he's been around, he said, for like 13 years. Or wow. Something. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And this, but this is the key thing with people. It's just that it's very, very difficult when you're trying to make that break. And people just, as you said about Mickey, he must have been seeing all these people coming, you know, you know, past him and thinking to himself, when is it going to happen? But just that one appearance, because that's how... Um, What's his name? Billy Connolly got discovered. I think mm-hmm. a, a cab driver must have said to Michael Parkinson, allegedly, that, listen, you there's this guy called Billy Connolly. He's funny. You want to have him on your show, mate. Oh. That, that's that's the rumour. I don't know how true it was. It may or may or not necessarily been true. But that's how people get to hear of you. Because, you know, if you're playing in certain clubs or whatever the case may be, because when, when he first, when Billy Connolly first appeared on on Parkinson, you know, he was a bit hesitant in order to sort of because I think he, one of his jo- um, uh, jokes was a bit near, bit near the knuckle, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't <laughs> quite that way. But you know, he, he picked something that was appropriate, and it was incredibly funny. And he literally, from that particular point on, being on Parkinson, everything just took off. Hmm, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's it gets, you know it can be the the toss of a coin. It can be that simple. For most people, it isn't, but it can be. And, you know, I I think in any creative field, it can be like that, you know, writing or um, or acting, you, you know, you're lucky to get cast in you know a big show if you look at somebody like um i'm sure i'm not going to pronounce his name right and chuti get is it the guy who's going to be the new doctor who oh yes yeah yeah he got a lucky break in the the netflix show and then now he's a new doctor who i mean that's that's stratospheric you know um compared to to others and there'll be people he went studied acting with who are working in starbucks yeah Exactly, exactly. That's the way the chips fall. Mm, it certainly is. And it might not be. I mean, I'm sure this guy, I've not seen that show he was in and Chuti was in, but I'm sure he's hugely talented. But I'm sure the guy in Starbucks is hugely talented too. Of course too. It's it is. Just, it's just... And it's, you know, it's, it is the luck of the draw in many ways. Totally, totally. 
So now we're going to move on to the section of the show called What Are You Like? Um, uh, yeah, um, I, know, I know the person I want to do the jingle for that, but I, <laughs> I haven't managed to sit down with her yet. But the, the woman there's, is... There's definitely a, a right way to say that. Yeah, isn't there? There's yeah. a right way to ask that question. What are you like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there is, I'm, look, I'm casting for that voice for that jingle. So um, uh, uh, be prepared, people. So you've chosen as your favourite book, one of my favourites, actually, even though I've never read the book, I've just um, seen the stuff on TV a lot of times, Pride and oh, Prejudice. Yeah, Jane Austen. I love Jane Austen. And she was funny. She was funny. There's no two ways about it. Um, yeah, she was a genuinely funny young woman. And there are genuinely brilliantly drawn funny characters uh the the dialogue is witty uh you know the the com the narrative that she writes is is funny and you know misunderstandings and, and so she's just genuinely a witty funny person and stories that that carry you along so i love that book it's one of the few novels i've read multiple times mm. well what i find fascinating and my the star of the book for me and the star of the film and tv adaptations is mrs bennett yes exactly <laughs> mrs bennett and i put it to you madam mrs bennett invented linkedin <laughs> she is the original networker because all she says throughout the whole thing is but what are his connections yeah that's so true that's so true that's so true oh my god no. can i write that can i have that can yeah of course yeah go for, <laughs> go for it go for it go for it next Mrs. video you see them there we go oh ladies and gentlemen yeah that, yeah so you invented linkedin it was that mrs bennett off of pride and prejudice oh, <laughs> it's so true yeah and, and i love and she is that sort of i she is definitely the prototype of that kind of character. But definitely, she's the star of the show. Yeah, oh, definitely for me, yes. Yeah. What are your connections? <laughs> yeah, <I'll> be... <laughs> Ooh, have you ever thought of being a voice artist? <laughs> I actually have, do you know? And um, I just didn't know how to break into it. Um, but yeah, um, I, I would love that. That would be um, uh, another string to pay for a bit of petrol, pay for some exactly. food. <laughs> Pay for, pay for some almond fingers. I don't know whatever. Or whatever your particular vice is. Exactly. Yeah, this me. Mine's almond fingers and um, um, bakewell tarts. Unfortunately. So yeah. Oh, uh, you definitely need to get a sponsor who'll send you. Yeah. Free yeah. Bakewell tarts. Exactly. Yeah, man. I'll do it for bakewell tarts, man. And fine wine, yeah. That's, you know, group. I'm not interested. Oh, now you're up, now you're upping the ante. First it was baby, now it's like, you know, Chateau Neuf de Pat, please. Well, you know, something at the end of the day, you got to think big. Go big or go home. Go home, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I better go home. And, uh, anyway, so you we're, we're on to your favourite business book. Oh, you've got a couple mm. here. So, Sorry I Broke Your Company. Company by Karen Phelan. Again, a woman writer. Uh, she's ex-McKinsey, I think it is. She was a business consultant. And, and so this was written from the point of view of her time uh, working in business consultancy. But honestly, that book just, to me, just kind of kills off the, the it ought to have killed off the consultancy industry because she just gets to the heart of the matter, particularly when it comes to uh, the topic of leadership. 
And she says something like, you know, being a good leader is exactly the same as being a good person. And I read that and I thought, well, in that one sentence, that's it. That's management training. That's leadership training in that one sentence. Yes. Excellent. And you've also got Drive by Daniel Pink. Which is a wonderful book. I mean, I love his books generally, but that one is about human motivation and motivation 2.0, as he calls it. And it's absolutely fascinating. And he talks about things like experiments they did where, you know, people were given rewards or not given rewards. And yet the people who did things out of intrinsic motivation that because they intrinsically wanted to do a good job, were no less motivated than the people who were given the money. In fact, if anything, you know, the reward didn't exactly correlate with doing a good job. What it is that people want to be in learning environments, people want to be appreciated, and all the things that make us human, they are the rewards we want. And the money's nice, but it doesn't replace those things. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting take. And and so that I, I would highly recommend again to anybody at work or anybody in a leadership position it's a great book right excellent so now we're moving on to your favorite albums now you've mm. chosen two which i'm very enthused about very enthused okay. about are you a jazz person i am indeed and ah. you've chosen vocalies by the manhattan mm. transfer Ooh, you got to me you got me there you got me there that is <sighs> an amazing record um, it's, uh, oh. it's their masterpiece, I think. Yes. It's their masterpiece. I think they'd come out of, so it was the mid 80s, 85, I think, and Correct. they'd come out of that being pop stars thing and you know they'd done all of that and you know they'd been on top of the pops and all the rest of it and and every album they'd done prior to vocalese had vocalese on it had some real pure jazz on it but this one they just went stratospheric with it and just it's all vocal jazz with the Count Basie Orchestra with Bobby uh, McFerrin and it is just an absolute masterpiece of jazz vocal. And I have to say, as that for those people who don't know what vocalese is, vocalese is a jazz singing technique popularized by John Hendrick. And John Hendrick wrote most of the lyrics for the album. Mm-hmm. He did indeed, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah um, Another Night in Tunisia, oh. fe- featuring the amazing Bobby McFerrin. I am a massive, massive Bobby McFerrin fan. And I loved him ever since he came out. I just think that. What every does is amazing. I'm going to be a bit of a snob and say early Bobby McFerrin is just, it's just, people should be locked up for that kind of talent. That's what I should have. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) I'm made to make more music. (laughs) I know. I saw him at the proms a few years ago conducting the Vienna Philharmonic. And you just think, is there anything this man cannot do? Yeah, yeah. he's, he's very scary. He's just so brilliant. It's just, but... When you hear him talk or being interviewed, he's such a humble yeah. and, you know, warm type of person. He's absolutely fantastic guy. And then you pick In the Moment by... In the Moment by Diane Reeves. Yeah, which oh. is a live album featuring I'm... Afro Blue. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, I love Diane Reeves. I love all her albums. 
but to capture Diane Reeves, you have to see her live. Mm. I mean, and so this album is, and she wanted to do a live album, I think, for a long time before she finally did this. And you, you have to see her live. It's it's electrifying. Mm. It's absolutely electrifying. And I've, I mean, I am. My husband calls calls me her stalker <laughs> because I have seen her a lot in concert, and I've seen the same concert more than once. You know, on a particular tour. I might have seen it here and then maybe in Paris as well. And it's different each night, same set list, but it's different each time. There's a different kind of magic because she just takes it and takes it in a different direction. And, oh, she's just, I mean, what that woman does with her voice. I mean, she is, you know, like Bobby McFerrin, there's, there's, you know, they do things that shouldn't be possible with the human voice. Yes. Amazing. Well, that's two fantastic choices there. And for your favourite film, you choose. What is mm -hmm. it? It's called Trouble in Paradise. It's from 1932. It's, uh, as you, you mentioned, I think, right at the top of the show, that I love my old movies, classic movies. And this, for me, is one of the greatest films of all time. It was directed by Ernst Lubitsch, who was this um, Austrian-German director who came to Hollywood and, and brought that kind of European sensibility to film. It's, it's very slick. It's very witty. There's a lot of slightly saucy dialogue in it for the time. And it's just a beautiful, funny film about two jewel thieves trying to con uh, a very rich w widow, but things don't quite go to plan. And it's just wonderful and funny and witty and, of course, glamorous because it's 1930s. The clothes, the decor. Oh, my word. It's fabulous. Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. So now we're getting towards the end of our time together. Um, I wanted to talk about From Couch to Stage. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a program on Dave TV. Um, <laughs> now that there's a thought, I should pitch it. To <laughs> I, I think you should, because it just sounds just classic. You know, how do we get... You've got a reality series going here. When you have to sue people because they've tried to nick you, I will be your um, uh, your witness. Thank you, your sir. Star witness. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, from, from Couch to State, it sounds great. You know, where you take... They, they had this thing the other day where it was, we can teach anybody to be an opera singer. I didn't watch oh, it. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think you should do from couch to stage and you should get people in the zone to being stand-up comedians. Well, it's it's mainly, I mean, couch to stage as it is at the moment is mainly about speaking skills yeah. and, and doing public speaking and and speaking as a life skill. But yeah, to, it, it definitely has an application for stand-up because a lot of the techniques that I use for confidence and so on apply and also structure. I talked about storytelling structure and so on and the rule of three. So there's a lot of overlap there. But that's a, at the moment, that's an online course that I do, but because I'm not quite sure the world's quite fully ready to be doing, um, you know, in in-person courses. But in the autumn, I think I'm going to run it in person where over the five, four or five weeks, 
we take you from, oh, I've never stood on a stage or I, I'm, you know, I don't like speaking up in meetings or I don't, you know, whatever it is that, that's holding you back. And then we, we go through that journey together and we go through that imperfection thing and we talk about the mindset and the reframing and all the rest of it. And, and we get you to a point where you can deliver a talk uh, or you're, you're, you're not scared to, to to take a view, to stand up and be counted and take a view and express your opinion. Um, and that's the joy. It's, it's really joyous to, to watch people's transformations. Brilliant. So tell me about Work Like a Comedian. So Work Like a Comedian is something I'm developing really for the... the for the corporate sector really and and that the idea as i say is that it's based around the things we do the comedian's craft so obviously humor is part of it because it's always part of everything i do um but it is about you know how how do we create things what do i do as a comedian in terms of creativity that you can then apply to your job and and a lot of people say to you because i work with a lot of finance people for some reason finance people seem to be particularly um concerned about getting on stage or you know talking in meetings or they say oh what i say is boring oh and it's really dull but you know my contention is that we all have creativity as part of our roles if you have to solve a problem in your job which pretty much all of us do then you have to deploy creative thinking so looking at creative thinking you know using that divergent thinking um, and trying to think out of the box for well I hate, I hate jargon like that but you know what I mean course, yeah. that kind of yeah that kind of doing doing something slightly differently and again with creativity not being afraid to get it wrong and that's that whole Samuel Beckett thing isn't it what did he say fail fail quickly move on yes. fail you know just keep doing it and and that's that's where we apply creativity to comedy that's how we apply it we write a joke doesn't work we do it we we refine it do it again refine it do it again do you know what this isn't working dump yeah. right next, next joke yeah. <laughs> and it ends and, and it's not it's being unafraid to to do that and it's also for leaders to say in a meeting okay i'm i'm looking for ideas i'm open to all ideas and and for those ideas to get put out on the table and somebody say do you know what I like that, but if you did it this way, so so that we we are co-creating. Exactly. So that, that's, exactly. Yeah. So that's part of, and that's what we do as comedians. Because if you think the the audience tells us whether they don't like it, so it is a co-creation process. Um, and then we look at confidence as well. So that that relates a lot to what I'm doing on couch to stage and with my one-to-one uh, -one coaching on speaking skills. And then there's this whole conscience element, which really is about. Um, how we behave with other people that we work with it's a lot to do with leadership because we're all leaders in a sense even if you don't have the word you know manager in your title we all have to exercise a degree of leadership and we all have to be aware of how we feel we have to take care of ourselves and we also have to take care of others and you know you can say one wrong word to somebody you can get really annoyed with somebody at work and and that can ruin their day and instead of trying to understand what happened uh you can actually cause a real problem for that person yeah or you could be really upset and think well how am i how do i do i'm gonna have to be honest about this so the you know the ways we interact with each other i think are really important 
and comedy comedy is about making people feel good i know you know there are there are instances where comedy can cross a line um but but by and large for me it's about making people feel good it's about them it's about the people sitting in front of me and i don't punch down on you know, some people do and get away with it. They cross that line or they tread that very fine line about punching right down on on p- other people. But doesn't yeah, that makes me cringe slightly. <laughs> you are a person that finds themselves on stage delivering material. After the Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock situation, both being assaulted on stage, what do you think of the cancel culture political correctness movement as an individual and amongst your peers and contemporaries in the comedy world mm, it's it's an interesting one because as i say a lot of comedy is is about punching down or uh, you know making sarcastic if i want to a better words remarks at somebody's expense a lot of comedy is at somebody's expense but it depends at whose expense and how far you go so i talk you talks about that video about you know oh I'm a man now so I'm going to start doing man stuff and and I and I've actually slightly changed that as well uh, and but I think it's okay for me because I'm not really punching down on men I'm just saying look it's not fair we women don't get the, the <laughs> we don't get a look in here sometimes and and so I feel like it's okay for me to say that and it's okay for me to say that because I'm a woman um you know if it was a man sort of say oh you know and, and i have i've heard men on stage particularly younger men who are quite new and haven't quite found their voice yet you know talking about oh women are crabby because it's their time of the month and stuff and i think hold on a minute you can't talk about that because it's not your story it's not your story mm. so when jimmy carr did that joke about the romanies I thought that was completely wrong because it was not his story to tell. Mm. He's not a part of that community. Um, He has no connection with that community. He also prefaced it by saying that he thought this could be a career killer. So he kind of knew what he was doing. And I'll be frank, I've got a lot of respect for that because he was just finding something to be controversial with. And we know that's what he does. But I thought for me, he crossed the line there. Equally, I think... (laughs) You know, Chris Rock, he made a personal comment about somebody and I would I really wouldn't do that. I wouldn't make a personal comment about somebody that's in the room about the way they look Um, because he maybe he knew that that she had alopecia. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But especially if you didn't, you don't go down that road. You really don't. But then again, you know, Will Smith, you know, punching him. People said, oh, it will open the doors to people being punched on stage. I don't know if that's what happened to Dave Chappelle. If somebody thought, well, if Will Smith can do it, so can I. Um, but again, you know, nothing is solved by punching somebody. No. You know, let's let's take it take it away from here. Let's talk about it as, mm. as human beings. I don't think that's all. I, I don't think that wokeness, and people use wokeness as a, a sort of almost an insult sometimes, has, has ruined comedy. I think it just... Yeah, I think it means you have to be clever. I think it means you can't, 
you can't insult people you shouldn't i mean you know people don't talk about mother you remember les dawson would always talk about oh, yeah. his mother-in-law and stuff yeah. and we thought that was hilarious at that you can't do that now you can't talk about your mother-in-law like that well wasn't um, wasn't there that thing from the pope that said that you shouldn't talk about your mother-in-law so i mean it's got the blessing man you got the blessing it's, got the, <laughs> it's got the blessing man <laughs> you know as i said straight down from you know the holy father straight man. down from his holiness yes yeah, yeah. he's keep putting yeah. it real you know keep it real yeah. with your mother-in-law you know just, yeah, just keep yeah, it real. yeah, keep it real, yeah, man. Yeah. Give it a holy water, you know, for yeah. straight up. <laughs> you know, uh, but <laughs> when when we changed for to not being able to talk about those things, we were able to talk about other things. Um, but suddenly, and then we've gone to oh, but you can't talk about that. And you can't talk about that, and you know, you can't talk about. There are some topics that aren't suitable for comedy i'm sorry they really aren't mm. um you know if i talk about i don't know sexual assault or something like that you know that's not part of my world if i talk about that some people do and and it's very unpleasant and to me i i cringe when i hear you know male com usually male comedians i'm afraid to say make jokes about that topic yeah uh, uh, to uh, me that's a line that's crossed exactly know? i i think there are lots of ways to be very clever one of the cleverest comedians in the old school world for me was ronnie barker oh brilliant that that man was just absolutely amazing yeah. his ability to turn words just inside out, upside down, around. He was a hundred percent a wordsmith, yes. wasn't he? Yeah. And yeah, puns and twisting of words, and it was just brilliant. And really, I don't think there's ever been anybody like him for that. Well, no, that there hasn't been. Writing. And what was interesting in relation to his relationship with Ronnie Corbett, it became apparent after a while because he didn't want Ronnie Corbett feeling uncomfortable because he was supplying a lot of the material. He would send scripts into the BBC under another name. That's right. And for ages, they didn't realise who Gerald Wiley was. <laughs> then, it, then it turned out it was Ronnie Parker. <laughs> um, you, know, that, 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 you know, to have that kind of respect for the person that you work with, you know, it's, it's rare. Yeah, and I tell you, have you ever saw? I was once privileged enough to see Ronnie Barker, uh, not Ronnie Barker, sorry, Ronnie Corbett do a stand-up set. My goodness. What a performer. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he was just a really gifted stand-up comedian. I don't think he wrote his own material. No. But, yeah, he worked with people who knew him well enough and the material worked for him. But, I mean, just utterly brilliant and just a fantastic stand-up. And he must have been in his 70s at the time. He was doing physical comedy. There was a joke about a guy doing push-ups and he got down and was doing these push-ups on the stage. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. Absolutely brilliant. So we're closing off now. So where can people find you on the internet? Oh, well, you can, my website, uh, melbyron.com, has plenty of information about uh, certainly my training and coaching work. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn um, under Mel Byron. I think there's only one of me, so you can find <laughs> me there. And, and I tend not to talk about comedy too much there, other than in the context of how I think it fits in with working life. But um, yeah, so you can find me there. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Mel underscore Byron underscore. And, uh, and I'm also on Twitter at the Mel Byron.
Excellent. And as I said, we have talked a lot about comedy today. Mm. And the only reason why we've talked a lot about comedy is it's because I think it's a great differentiator for you as an individual. Because it's it's your superpower. And carry on. Yeah. I think so too. And I, you know, for a long time, I was trying to run the two things in in parallel. I was running, I was doing speaker training and advertising that. And then I was doing my comedy and and it took me a while to think, well, hang on a minute. This is your USP. You know, this makes you different than everybody else. So combine (laughs) them. Yeah, exactly. Because there are exactly. also you can there are people there are um actors and, and people like that who do corporate training and I'm not I'm not in any way kind of dissing what they do, but I have that. I, I've not only done the performance side, but I've actually done the job as well. You know, I've been in that office situation. So I understand how it relates to what you do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, plus, obviously, I run my own you know, business. I'm a solopreneur as well. So I've got all of those things. Um, whereas a lot of the performers, there are actors, as I say, who go into companies and stuff. And, that, and they do a great job, but they've never worked in that environment so so I do feel that that bringing all those things together has yeah is it's my superpower absolutely I call it my USP but I like superpower better yeah well you know something I just think that it's it's important because people people need something to attach to you to make yourself different I love the way that Americans and my apologies to my American listeners I love the way that people say you know there was a lady I saw in a video and she described herself as the fraud broad. Um, and, you know, it wasn't something that she was necessarily going to stick on her business cards, but everybody <laughs> remembered her as the fraud broad. Now, I mean, I know it would have lots of people sort of going absolutely apoplectic, you know, with, um, uh, with, with thinking, you know, sexism and all kinds of negative thoughts. But people remembered her from that. Totally. You know, totally. Um, yeah. So, you know, you know, or they'll have something on there that you, their LinkedIn profile will say, you know, I'm the, the taxis guy, or there's a guy in the, like, the music community who calls himself suit and tie guy, and he's yeah. always in a suit and tie. So you, yeah. you've, you've met the suit and tie guy, have you? Yeah, yeah, that's the guy <laughs> with the suit. And... Because we as human beings, we need these, these signs in order to, to, to basically point people in the direction. There's little hooks and these things. And we all need to, there's there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of noise out there, isn't there? And so we need to differentiate ourselves. And, and, you know, it's it's certainly in business, uh, you know, I've realized, as I say, it took me too long, but you have to differentiate yourself. What makes you different? Why why would I hire you and not that guy? Well, I bring this to the table and this is interesting. And only I bring this combination. Exactly. And when you arrive is when you arrive. And when you actually get your comedy special, do remember Mm me. I certainly will, sir. Maybe you could do the opening voiceover for it. Yeah, I could could whip up the crowd, sort of said, and here's Mel. When I listen to the podcast, I might cut that bit out now and just, just use, <laughs> play that. It was like, oh, here's Mel. Okay, <laughs> it will be there. I, I could cut that bit out of here's Mel. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. What... Okay. Ready for my Netflix special. Exactly. Guys. That's what. You, that's where you want to be. You want to be able to get your Netflix special and uh, yeah, at least be able to pay for your petrol. 
<laughs> exactly. Yes, one pound sixty-five a litre. <laughs> As I always in um, uh, my uh, what though, my my videos, I always say, "Be careful, it's rough out there." <laughs> Mel Byron, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, it's just been fantastic. I've really enjoyed myself. You sh I've learned so much. And I hope that I've been able to um, uh, bring out the best qualities of your um, comedic style and that you are in a position to obviously use this as a launch pad for bigger things. <laughs> thank you so much, Clayton. I I'm just so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute blast. And, you know, it's just lovely to talk uh, to you. I'd love to talk to somebody where we, I feel we've got that connection. There's lots of things, you know, that we we kind of share. And I didn't know we shared jazz music. So there you go. Well, they, this is what it's all about. I learned so much about people from this and they in turn know, learn something about me. So that's all very well and good. It's all good. Excellent. Well, I'm going to say thank you to all the listeners, all the Cashflow crew and listeners old and new. And if you are an old listener, we'll give you a big hug. If you're new, we'll shake hands for now. We've come to the end of the Cashflow show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five-star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world and spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for real people, real business, real talk. talk, talk.